Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. What is happening, gang? We have got a fun show for you today on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pulling. In today's episode, we begin our two-part look at the cap in the NFL. So these two episodes, we're going to spend the first one focus kind of exclusively on how the cap came to be, the history of the cap. Bill was uniquely positioned in his role as the GM of the Bills and working at the league office to kind of see the full creation of the cap and was heavily involved in the working group that advised Commissioner Tagliabu. So this is a really fun episode that goes into kind of all the details and permutations of the cap. And then in next week's show, we actually get into cap management. So we'll deal with that when we when we head into it. But for this week's show, our primary focus is the history of the cap in the NFL. So sit back, relax. This is a fun one because we get to learn how it came to be, all the permutations of it, and those early days of constructing the cap in the NFL. All right, gang. Well, we've got fully lit lamps today on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian, and I know you guys have been clamoring for it. We have heard it on social media, and we are here with it. This begins our two-part look. These episodes are going to be a little shorter, so we're trying something a little new for you guys. So this is, begins our two-part look at cap management in the NFL. So we look at how it came to be, who designed it, why was it designed, and how to live and thrive under it. So if you ever want to learn about cap management inside of the NFL, you have come to the right place. So, Rick, kick us off this week. Absolutely. Okay, let's start with some context by reviewing the events that led to the 1993 CBA, where the salary cap was not a standalone creation, as a lot of people think about it, but really part of a whole new system. So, in understanding the backdrop, of course, we know that labor management relations in the NFL had been historically contentious. But the era between 1980 and 1993 had been unusually antagonistic, even by NFL standards. So give us your memory about what was going on on the owner's side with Pete Rozelle, Jack Donlan, and Hugh Culverhouse, and the highlights, or maybe the lowlights, I should say, of that period. Well, there are a lot of lowlights. You go back to the strike of 82, uh, and, and a demand for free agency by the players, uh, which ended in very acrimoniously. And after that, um, it was decided by the owners and with Pete Rozelle's concurrence that he would be in a position where uh, he wasn't going to involve himself in, in negotiating with the union any longer. And so they appointed something called the NFL Management Council, uh, and somehow or other, Hugh Culverhouse, the owner of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, uh, got to become chairman of it. Um, to put it charitably, Mr. Culverhouse was not a friend of unions. <laughs> I wasn't fond of them and, uh, and didn't think much of them. Um, obviously, we needed a union because of the antitrust issues that were involved, but, um, it, you know... <laughs> Union in name only from his standpoint. He uh, hired Jack Donlan, who was a labor negotiator, a labor lawyer who had worked for National Airlines, I believe, in Miami, Florida. Um, Donlan came came in and took over the management council. And uh, 
things bumped along consensuously until we got to 87, where the players struck after the second game of the regular season. In order to defeat that, and, and <laughs> it worked just the other way, but in order to defeat that, uh, Culverhouse and Donlin, along with Tex Schramm, had come up with the idea of replacement players. So we had a, a, a season of three games featuring replacement players, which was awful. Uh, some players crossed the picket line. That was Donlin and Culverhouse's. This was principally Donlin's creation. Um, some players crossed the picket line, some high-profile players, uh, but but not enough to end the thing up in, a, in any definitive way. But after three weeks, both sides actually capitulated a little bit because the NFL was getting a super black eye because of the quality of, the, of play and the fact that there were no fans in the stands and that the owners had to refund a lot of money uh, for tickets that were purchased. Uh, and so it ended up in a, in a standoff and a stalemate. Following that, uh, the union went to court in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'll let Rick explain that why that is in just a second. Um, they went to court in Minneapolis, Minnesota, with a named plaintiff named Freeman McNeil, who was a running back for the Jets, essentially asking for free agency. Um, at that point, uh, Rick, why don't you explain to him why why they were in Minneapolis? So uh, the the, the uh, players, I guess, were either smart enough, or you could look at this cynically as, as a manipulation of the system, to forum shop and seek uh, a favorable judge. And uh, they found one uh, in Judge uh, David Doty, who's a, a terrific judge, but definitely one I think they knew that in the grander scheme of things was more pro-worker in the general sense and therefore more pro-player, given the, the situation that was then existing in the National Football League. The, uh, so they go to court in Minnesota. They have a trial. Um, essentially, Judge Doty rules that the NFL violated the antitrust agreement and, and, and frees uh, Freeman McNeil and, and a few other players, notably uh, Jackson, the tight end from the, Phil the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah, Keith Jackson. Keith Jackson. Uh, but then the NFL appeals it to the appeals court, and the appeals court says that uh, Judge Doty was right in freeing the players, but that a relationship called a bargaining relationship, which is a legal term, um, it still exists between the uh, owners and the players union, even though the collective bargaining agreement had expired. Uh, so now uh, the union has to make a decision as to what they're going to do. They're going to continue to bar borrow, uh, excuse me, bargain with Donlin and company, or are they going to uh, go ahead and do something different? And they did something different. They decertified the union. They said, we're no longer a union. And in doing so, um, they now put forth, again, in the same court in Minneapolis, federal court, federal district court, a suit by Reggie White, uh, big name uh, defensive end. And Reggie alleges in the suit that 
uh, the NFL has violated the antitrust laws and is therefore liable for what are called treble damages. That means that whatever monetary damage the the jury uh, finds, let's call it a million dollars just to pick a figure out of the air, it's automatically trebled to three million. Well, it wasn't a million dollars that it was was at stake. There was a lot more than that. And triple a lot more than that makes every <laughs> NFL <laughs> owner quake. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. In addition, and just as importantly financially, the uh, if if the NFL were to lose that trial, the draft would go away. And the draft was the one means of a equally distributing talent and b keeping a price war from developing over players who'd never put on an NFL jersey before. You know, Bill. Actually, uh, I was going to let me just add, if you wouldn't mind. Really, Bill, it's the whole system that goes because when you when you absent the labor exemption, which you have when you, you had a collective bargaining agreement or at least a union in place, um, everything that the league does from from a standard player contract uh, to uh, a waiver system, you know, and everything else becomes a conspiracy between 32 competitors to restrain trade. So so the very essence of things you have to do as a league, to be a league, becomes illegal, and hence the players decertifying. And Bill's so right, you not only expose them to tremendous, tremendous uh, economic risk, but you risk shutting down the entire system. Yeah, so it was a, it was a very difficult, very difficult situation for the owners. At the same time, Roughly the same time, 1989, um, at the spring owners meeting, uh, Pete Rozelle, longtime revered commissioner, viewed by the general public and by people inside the league as well and the media, etc., as the most successful and, and, and the model of all sports commissioners, sits there, opens the meeting, I'm sitting about six feet away from him, maybe eight feet away from him <laughs> uh, at the Buffalo Bills table. And Pete announces that he's retiring. And and there were gasps. <laughs> there were intakes of breath. There, there were some, what? No. And he went on to explain that, that he'd had enough. He was retiring. He would turn over the selection process to the ver- to the conference chairman, which happened to be uh, Wellington Mara and uh, and Mr. Hunt, Clark, uh, Lamar Hunt from the uh, Kansas City Chiefs. And a shocked, a shocked audience of NFL owners and executives sat there dumbstruck. <laughs> right. And so now <laughs> chaos <laughs> broke loose. Well, <laughs> I think that Wellington and and Lamar had been given a heads up. So they immediately took the dais, appointed a committee to vet the candidates who would replace Pete and uh, <clears throat> went on to deal with the uh, the regular business at hand. We broke for lunch. The announcement was made. The football world was turned upside down. 
And then in the afternoon, we went right back to conducting business. And, and actually, Pete, I was competition committee in the afternoon. And so Pete wasn't really in the room, but the, the tech shram handled that. You know, Bill, I, 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 bet, I bet you're right about giving Wellington and uh, a heads up. Uh, and, and I guess also uh, Mr. Hunt, because in my memory is that any time uh, Pete ever introduced anything, he had already counted the votes and knew what result he wanted to be before he, you know, so he, he had to know those guys were going to go up and save the bacon of the meeting, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that that well, I, he didn't he didn't keep Wellington and and, and Lamar in the dark. Absolutely not. Uh, but I know our owner Ralph Wilson was shocked by it. He he had no no knowledge of it. In any event, they went forward with the the process of of, of vetting candidates, and and two emerged uh, in in short order. Uh, Jim Finks the then uh, president of the New Orleans Saints, uh, a, a, who was an outstanding individual, ve- revered football man, the patron saint of all football general managers, uh, <laughs> and, and, and a, a, a just just a iconic figure uh, who happened to be very funny, very personable, very knowledgeable, beloved uh, uh, by by virtually everybody in the league, and Paul Tagliabue, who was known to people in the league office and known to some owners who had served on various committees uh, with him, but absolutely unknown to the general public. Uh, and and Paul had been uh, the captain of the Georgetown basketball team. Uh, he'd gone to New York University on a on a, a law school on a scholarship. Uh, worked in the Pentagon for close to f- over four years uh, in the office of the Secretary of Defense, and then had gone to work for Covington and Burling, which is the league's law firm. Second chair to Hamilton Carruthers, then Bill, right? Yes, that's correct, Ham Carruthers, and uh, uh, and CNB was the. Uh, the league's law firm. And so Paul was involved in, in every single major issue going all the way back to the 60s with uh, with Bachelors Three and Joe Namath uh, <laughs> having to divest, divest himself of an interest in a nightclub or saloon on Third Avenue in New York called Bachelors Three, which was being frequented by gamblers. So he was a he was the ultimate league insider, but absolutely unknown to the outside, and uh, and so uh, sort of a uh, you might say a, a a an election or perhaps a popularity contest emerged, and it started to play out in the public, and uh, and then it it ended up with um, uh, votes being taken uh, in. November, I believe it was, of 89. And uh, uh, Finks ended up being the, 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 chair, uh, the uh, candidate of the, quote, old guard, close quote, uh, which consisted of the old line NFL owners, uh, Wellington Mara, Art Modell, uh, Art, uh, Dan Rooney, uh, et cetera, uh, the Bidwells, uh, 
the Chicago Bears, the McCaskey family, you know, the people who'd been around the, the league for a long time. And Paul ended up being the chairman, uh, the uh, preferred candidate of, of so-called New Guard, which consisted of the uh, under the leadership of Norman Brayman uh, of, of the Philadelphia Eagles and some some new um, some newer owners, including Robert Ursay Sr., who owned the Colts at the time. Um, in the end, uh, Paul won. Uh, there were a bunch of fits and starts. Uh, at one point, there was a compromise floated where um, Paul would head the business side and Jim would head the football side. Um, neither man wanted that. Um, and so in the end, Paul won the election and was installed as the new commissioner. Um, the one of the first things he did, ironically, when he became commissioner, was to appoint Jim Finks, the chairman of the competition committee, which along with the finance committee is the, the two most powerful committees in the league. And, uh, and they proposed legislation. It's just like the congressional system. The league committees propose legislation and the chairman of those committees are very, very powerful within the league. And uh, and and Jim was appointed to the most powerful football position, which was the head of the competition committee. So in a sense, Paul went right to the the playbook of Abraham Lincoln, as described by Doris Kearns Goodwin in, in Team of Rivals, in that uh, he put his principal rival in charge of football. It turned out to be a wonderful move. Uh, because Paul had to involve himself in labor from there on out. Uh, interestingly enough, in his talk to the owners, which amounted to an um, interview, job interview, he pointed out that he thought that the league, this is Paul Tagliabue now, pointed out that the league uh, was not and would not ever reach its full financial and artistic uh, potential if we continued with the labor strife that we had experienced over the past, nearly past decade. He said that things had to change, that we had to forge a new identity and a new partnership with, with the union if we were going to uh, prosper and grow as we should, that the players had a stake in it. Uh, they needed to realize they had a stake in it, and, and ownership needed to, to do that. Obviously, with his election as commissioner, that position was ratified, and uh, that point of view was ratified. And so he immediately set about to try and, and, and build some bridges um, to the— uh, uh, union and to try and 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 in his own mind craft a system that would go forward and allow the league to prosper. One of the first things he did, uh, because he made his home in Washington, he had an apartment in New York for all the years he was commissioner, but maintained his home in Washington, uh, which is where Covington and Burling was located. He he took Gene Upshaw to dinner, and. Uh, you know, as two ex-jocks, I, I would have given anything to be a, a fly on the wall. Yeah. 
<laughs> I bet they were telling war stories back to their high school days. But, uh, you know, two elite athletes who had, who had performed in their younger days at a very much higher level than, than uh, the average person or even the average athlete. And, and so they, they found that they had something in common, and, and that relationship grew uh, wider and deeper over the years to the point where when Gene um, tragically passed away at quite a young age from cancer, Paul was, was one of the people who eulogized him at his memorial service, and very, very emotionally and poignantly so. Bill, let me just uh, get you to pause and comment on something, because uh, I want to just say, you know, a, a wonderful job on the on the uh, Upshaw uh, Tagliabue relationship. And I don't know this, but I bet they went to the Palm. Uh, but anyhow, <laughs> um, you know, sort of dwell a little bit longer. What an extraordinary thing this was at this point in time for Tagliabue to come up with this vision that was so different you know, from the entire previous history of labor management relations. I mean, it was really an extraordinary thing and also showed a lot of self-confidence for still a relatively young guy that he could convince everybody on both sides, didn't it? Well, he did. It was a long, hard struggle, uh, but ultimately he did. Um, he, he, his vision for uh, cure the labor ills uh, was to create a system that would share revenue with the players, uh, which was, uh, and I'll let you talk about the details of it, in, pre in its previous incarnation, considered to be communistic. Uh, why don't you <laughs> fill in the blanks there? Right. <laughs> so uh, a couple collective bargaining sessions back, Ed Garvey, uh, who was then head of the NFL Players Association, who was the executive director, proposed a very similar system whereby the players would receive 55% of the gross. Now, they did this in that point in lieu of free agency because they had fought so many times for free agency and lost so many times because the players were always successful in the courts but never successful on the picket line. But when Garvey introduced this idea of a percentage of the gross going to the players, it was considered absolutely heretical by the owners. They condemned the idea to the ash can of history, and their feeling about Garvey was that he ranked somewhere between, I would say, Leon Trotsky and Che Guevara, <laughs> so that you know, it, it was just beyond question this was not a good idea. And actually, even at that point, Ed was so far out ahead of the players themselves that when this idea failed, um, he lost his job. So uh, Paul was resurrecting something that not that long before had been absolutely verboten and came up with a, actually a, uh, a much better system around it, good Bill will tell you about. But again, uh, Bill, as we Irishmen would say, that took a lot of chutzpah. <laughs> <laughs> it did. Uh, Paul's idea was that the the bedrock of the of the system, the foundation of the system, would be a a system that produced long term labor peace. And the reason was that. With long-term labor peace, 
you could assure the networks that there were going to be games, that there weren't be there wouldn't be interruptions and strikes and replacement games and what have you. So if you had a long term deal that you could build on from uh, from uh, deal to deal, you would have long term labor peace, which in the long run would increase revenues dramatically and and therefore a rising tide would lift all boats. And he was trying and said from the outset that he was trying to craft a win-win, a win for ownership and a win for the players. And that was a dramatic shift from uh, what, what had gone on before. Uh, quite honestly, Jack Donlin didn't agree with that. Uh, he was still in office. Um, he didn't stay there for long. He was eventually replaced by a man named Harold Henderson, who, who had come from uh, Amtrak. He had been the, uh, the uh, labor negotiator for Amtrak. And, and with an interesting background, he, he had been uh, a, a, a policeman in Detroit, went to Michigan State University, uh, did outstandingly well there, Harvard Law School, and then went advanced uh, to a, uh, a career in, in labor relations, heading eventually to the top spot at Amtrak. He was, um, so uh, he not only knew labor law, but he knew the street as well and had a lot of common sense and an, an, as fine an individual as you're, you're ever going to want to meet. Um, so why do I know all this? Uh, because uh, in in 1990, uh, Jim Finks, I think, uh, had me appointed to the competition committee. He never told me that, but I believe it's true since he was the chairman. He, <laughs> it's a good rumor. That's a reasonable rumor. We'd been friends for, for years, and, and I viewed him as a mentor and someone that I relied a lot on for advice. And counsel, uh, he he was a, a tremendously witty man, and and so you always had to be on the alert for a barb, you know, or or just a joke that was hysterically funny. And so when I was appointed general manager of the Buffalo Bills in '86, uh, I came up from the press conference with my family, and and obviously everybody's all excited, and it's a you know it's a big day. And my assistant said, Mr. Finks is on the phone for you. And I said, oh, great. Thank you. And, and my wife said, oh, isn't that wonderful? That's just like Jim to call and congratulate you. And so I picked up the phone and I, and I, I said, how you doing, Jim? And he said, I just wanted to call to tell you you're, you're one day closer to being fired. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Bill, we could do a whole show on Finksisms. You know what I mean? Everybody in football who Finks touched, you know. As, the, as their favorite Jim Fink's line. Yes, indeed. Indeed. I'm Jim Fink's stories. So anyway, um, I joined the competition committee and then uh, we set about dealing with the normal football uh, things. And I, I'm in football heaven because I'm sitting there with Paul Brown and Bill Walsh and, and, and George Young and <laughs> you know all these icons of the game, Tom Flores, it, it, you know, wow, <laughs> I'm saying to myself, Don Shula, you know, wh what am I doing here? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, who invited this guy? Yeah, who invited this kid from the Bronx to this meeting? Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So 
uh, we're, we're setting about doing what, what the competition committee always does. And meanwhile, Commissioner Tagliabue is focused directly on what's happening in court in Minneapolis. And so, Rick, you may want to just reiterate what's at stake at this point, uh, because you, you can do it better than I can. And, and, and it's important to recognize exactly that, that we're on the brink of a, of, a, of a disaster, at least from management standpoint. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and this is where sort of the two tracks of the battleground in the federal courts and uh, labor negotiations, on the other hand, come together uh, because the white case is pending and Judge Doty, a federal judge, uh, calls the parties in and says, you guys better settle. Because otherwise, I'm going to do something none of you like. And when a federal judge says that, everybody listened. So that was one of the things that was the impetus to get everybody on board, because the settlement in the White case was going to be the the vehicle in which the collective bargaining agreement would be part, and Judge Doty had to approve that. So... Even though, it, as Bill was saying, for a period of time, Donlan was still uh, in there. He was still trying to get uh, Gene fired. There was a lot of contention. Uh, Paul had introduced this uh, radically different idea. Uh, he had people on his side against it, but they all knew that if they did not do something, the world as we knew it inside of the NFL was going to end. So... That is really one of the, the sort of the unknown things uh, in, the, in the history of football that helped usher in uh, this new era under the system that Bill is actually about to describe. So with that as, as the predicate, uh, Paul Tagliabue takes over as commissioner. Uh, he wraps both of his long arms around the, the labor problem and goes to work. And the first thing he did was to appoint a working so-called working group to the management council um which were people he felt i guess were who, who were both knowledgeable and progressive um n- not part of the the, the donlin let's let's break the union cabal and so uh jim ursay who was then general manager of the colts was appointed uh steve gutman uh, who was the chief financial officer and later president of the New York Jets, was appointed. He was a brilliant finance person. Um, George Young, uh, the legendarily successful general manager of the New York Giants, who had negotiated a very difficult situation between Wellington Mara and his nephew, Tim, who were co-owners who couldn't agree. So George had a lot of uh, uh, not only great football acumen, but... A great ability to deal with difficult circumstances and succeed. And somehow or other, yours truly was appointed to that group. So we sat down uh, along with the management council staff. Um, Jack Donlin was still there, but Dennis Curran, the, the uh, chief counsel, was, uh, was involved. Uh, Peter Rucco, who was a uh, uh, one of the senior labor analysts, 
um, John Jones, who is uh, the the uh, public relations person for management council, Buck Briggs, who uh, was a, a, a litigator for management council um, and had played football at Cornell. Uh, we're all part of that. John Shaw, the uh, president of the uh, Los Angeles, Ram then Los Angeles Rams, uh, was part of it. And, and so Paul explained to us what his vision was. He wanted to have a guarantee of revenue for the players. He, he, and we all agreed, felt that free agency was going to have to come in some form. We didn't know in what form, but it was going to have to come in some form. In order to accommodate the guarantee, we were going to have to have revenue sharing among the owners and that had, you know, additional revenue sharing. They did share television revenue, but it was going to require additional revenue sharing, which was going to be an exceedingly consent contentious issue. And, um, and then in addition, th there was going to have to be a, a floor um, to, to which every club would have to spend, and then a cap which would constrain club spending and effectively in free agency disperse talent around the league. And Paul's theory, which was 100% correct, was that if you disperse the, uh, talent around the league, then everyone would have a chance to compete. And the fact that we had what later became to be termed competitive balance uh, would cause every market to prosper and the networks to prosper and be thrilled to carry our games because they were so competitive and everybody had a chance to win. This was a revolutionary theory because at the time baseball had already had free agency. Uh, they had had a labor agreement with Marvin Miller, the head of their union, but it had no cap. They had tried to impose a luxury tax, but they weren't having a lot of success with it. And the big market teams, the Yankees, the Dodgers, et cetera, were just gobbling up all the talent. George Steinbrenner was at his at his voracious spending best, uh, <laughs> right. starting with Catfish Hunter and Reggie Jackson and on and on. Right. The straw that stirred the Yankees drink. <laughs> so Paul recognized that we didn't want that. So he said, OK, here's the vision. This is what we have to do. You guys get busy, busy crafting it. And while we were busy, uh, it seemed like night, noon and morning. Don't forget, we're all involved in running the teams that we're working for. In, in addition, um, while we were busy night, noon and morning doing that, he was busy uh, speaking with Gene and the people that Gene had empowered uh, to speak on his behalf, principally Jim Quinn, a lawyer from, who was trying the white case and Jeff Kessler, a lawyer who was trying the white, white case. And, um, and of course, on our side, it was Paul and essentially Wellington Mara and, and, and Dan Rooney having back channel discussions. But the key difficulty that I know Paul anticipated, we were kind of shocked by it, I think it's fair to say, the working group, was that 
there were many owners, not a, pl a plurality for sure, not a majority, but a, but a pl big plurality who believed no free agency and, and absolutely no guarantees and no revenue sharing. Right. Guarantees and revenue sharing yeah. went hand in hand. They, they were Siamese twins. So it was a long, difficult haul to get our side, ownership and management, to agree to Paul's framework. And he gets a lot of credit for creating 20 years of labor peace. And most of it is, is you know, he and Gene and the fact that his word, Gene trusted his word implicitly, uh, which is, you know, that's Paul Tagliabue. If he tells it to you, you can take it to the bank. Uh, and all that's true. But what doesn't get enough uh, publicity nor credit is the job that he did convincing the owners that this radical system that they had never before contemplated was now going to be the way things were. You know, you, you seldom when you think back, uh, whether it's history in general or politics, uh, you know, when, when somebody's the head of an organization, I mean, generally, you know, he can just do it. But the commissioner is in a, in a really odd role because on one hand, he oversees all the owners, but on the other hand, he's their employee. So, you know, how far can you push it with how many guys, you know, who could turn around and vote you right out of office, Bill? Yeah, that's exactly right. He had a contract, but, uh, you know, it's probably only good to get paid, not to work. <laughs> so <laughs> the bottom line is it tested every bit of diplomatic uh, talent he had, which was incredibly large. And and in the end, he he finally bent them to his vision. But it was very, very difficult, very difficult. So you had for him and to a much lesser extent us, uh, the battle of, of, of getting the owners to, to see his vision, crafting something that we could sell to the union, and then ultimately negotiating with the union back and forth. So Paul did two completely different negotiations, one with the owners, and then secondly, with the union. And, and we were busy, uh, those of us on the working group were busy crafting what would ultimately become the system uh, that became the salary cap. So speaking of that, Bill, you know, as you mentioned, uh, there were two of the uh, other major sports, uh, professional sports leagues in the United States uh, had moved in this direction. Uh, you had the NBA, but they had the soft cap with the Larry Bird exception and all the others. And uh, baseball had... Uh, no real, no real system other than the luxury tax, which was really just a transfer of money among owners. Uh, were there things about? First of all, did you did you guys on the committee uh, speak to the commissioners? Or, you know of of the NBA and uh, of MLB. Uh, were there things you liked? Were, there, were did they give you any good advice? Even though their, their systems were, I believe, flawed. Uh, yes, uh, we spoke to David Stern, then the commissioner of the. Uh, NBA, uh, his deputy commissioner, his number two guy, Gary Bettman, who became and is still the commissioner of the National Hockey League. And he and I became friends because of that association. Uh, 
I spoke briefly because we had a mutual friend to Commissioner Selig, who was then taken over in baseball. Uh, but Peter Rucco and the management council staff uh, spoke quite a bit to uh, a, a guy who's now a household name, who was then uh, not a backbencher, but a, not known to the public, uh, Rob, named Rob Manfred, who's now the commissioner of baseball. Uh, and, and what we got from it, baseball wasn't really applicable because we'd already figured out, interestingly enough, uh, largely uh, because of the work of George Young and the wisdom of George Young, that if we had free agency after six years in football, we could replace anybody. Because that's what they do in baseball. They presume four years in the minor leagues, six years in the big leagues, and a guy's career is at the end. And now you, you, you recycle a new player in there. And baseball had six-year free agency. So we thought, let's sell this. Let's see if we can get six-year free agency. We'll find out how that worked out <laughs> a little later in the broadcast. But spoiler alert, not well. <laughs> but the issue of the cap was, was very, very much up in the air. And the question was, do we have a soft cap, such as the NBA, or do we have a hard cap, which, which meant few exceptions and every dollar counted all the time. And as a result, we got differing opinions from David Stern and Gary Breton. David Stern said, no, no, have a soft cap. Give yourself flexibility. The owners will like it more. You'll have more flexibility. You can create exceptions to keep players, which, by the way, was a wonderful suggestion. We did adapt that. That became the franchise player. But, the, the, you know, he said, don't tie yourself to an to a, a unrelenting presence. Gary Bettman said just the opposite. He said, you have, we have only 12 players on the team. So it's easy for us to manage, relatively easy, to manage a soft cap. You have, at that time, I believe, 47 or 50 players on a team, 53 now, soon to be 55. He said, you have too many players to manage. That's too many contracts to manage. That's too many chances for people to make mistakes and subvert the system. You're better off with a hard cap. And so... That's where we came out in the end. But that was a long, hard discussion that where there were differing opinions on our side. Uh, and gosh, we went around and around on the ramifications of it, spent a lot of time on that. But ultimately, we came out with the idea of a hard cap, which which turned out to be the right thing for the reasons that Gary Bettman had stated. Hey, Bill, I never asked you this, but um what was your initial feeling about hard versus soft cap? I didn't know enough um, to have an informed opinion. Uh, my gut reaction was was uh, uh, soft cap because we had built a very good team in Buffalo, and I would I, I selfishly wanted to keep you know all those right. players. Right. Yeah. Uh, but the more I learned about it from Gary Bettman and and from all the folks at Management Council who were really experts on it, uh, and and from others that we talked to in sports, uh, it became clear that that Bettman's view of things was correct. We had 
we had too many players and too many agents and too many people who would find loopholes in a soft cap to to make it stand up over time and and to go through all the agony, literally the agony that Paul was going through to convince the owners to do this, we were going to need to be able to say to them, look, every dollar is going to get counted all the time. And of course, the minute you said that, the clubs who had good teams' reaction was no. Right, right. And the, and the, and the, and the big market teams' reactions, Jerry Jones' reaction was no. <laughs> you know, I want to be free to spend. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, Bill, to that point, did you guys think through, because, I mean, it's interesting how it's played out, right, where I think having the soft cap in the NBA has led to the players having far more power uh, over ownership and far more power in sort of the league structure than perhaps in a hard cap system in the in the NFL. Like seeing how it's played out, obviously hindsight being twenty twenty. But did that come up at all in sort of thinking through the negotiation of if you do go with a soft cap, that's another sort of lever that you're giving the players that would eventually probably give them more power. Yes, yes. The the, the really insightful people, particularly on the management council. Um, Talked about and we all talked about that. That was the value of having people who are running teams and making personnel decisions at the table. We were able to say, "Look, this is nice. This this theory is nice in practice, uh, or in theory, but but in practice, uh, it, I can think of five ways to subjugate that before we finish lunch." So, uh, mm-hmm. right, uh, you, you know that that's the way it went, and and we were able to anticipate a lot of what happened. And then, of course, we were completely shocked, uh, honest to goodness, of, out of our shoes when the, the salary cap and, and the system went into effect in 1993 and, and, and restricted free agency, which we thought was foolproof, was blown out of the water by Lee Steinberg in the, in the Will Wolford uh, contract with Indianapolis in 15 seconds. So... <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it just went. It, it shows you that there is absolutely no way that you can predict every situation, and 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 you need to have the hard cap because that's exactly what happened. You know, and it's you know, and it wasn't that uh, surprising to me that you you couldn't anticipate that because you know there had never been meaningful free agency in football. So you know, uh, when the guy finally got sprung. You know, and he has 31 other, you know, clubs and you have an aggressive agent like Lee Steinberg, you know, that's where you get, you know. Well, Wilford was a restricted free agent. I don't believe he was a uh, I I think he was restricted. Oh, okay. I thought at that point he wasn't. Okay, I I could be wrong on that. I could be wrong on that. I'd left the bills by that time. So I could I could be wrong on that. But you're right. I mean, we we did anticipate that there would be widespread movement. That was. I mean, that was one of the things that Paul sold Gene. There will be widespread movement. And in fact, we anticipated it so much that we did, in fact, broach the idea of the franchise player and ultimately got it in there. Uh, but the, the, the whole idea was, was really revolutionary. The whole idea of the system was revolutionary. And... The fits and starts that we went and the lengths that we went to to get people on board were, on the one hand, 
really, really difficult, and on the other hand, funny. So, for example, um, we had a league meeting, and I'm going to be wrong on the year, so I'm not even going to – I'm thinking it's 92, but I could be wrong on that. In any event, it was in Pasadena, California. And it was a regularly scheduled league meeting at the end of May, just prior to Memorial Day weekend. And it was the last business meeting of the football year. After that, everybody would go home, tidy up their desks. Uh, Mini camps were over. There were no OTAs, none of that. And, and everybody would go on vacation until about the second week in July. So you would have six weeks of vacation, which for those uh, uh, of our listeners who, who think we were we were goofing off. Right. In football, you work seven days a week, uh, uh, eleven months a year. So for the other forty-six weeks, yeah, yeah, right. it's the only time <laughs> off we had. So every, every, we would wrap up the spring meeting like noon on the last day, and everybody would head for the airport, and away you go. So. Paul Tagli would convene the working group, and he said, you guys are not going home at noon at the end of the meeting. You're going to stay here because Al Davis has some thoughts that he wants to share, and we need to listen, and we need to vet them, and we need to find out if there's merit to them, and if not, and however long it takes, it takes. And so Al came in, and he made a suggestions, some of which we knew were not going to fly. He wanted six-year free agency. Well, We'd been up that down that road before, and the answer was no. There was a big blockade at the end of the road. The union wouldn't hear about it. And, and they were adamant. They were making it clear that they were adamant about four-year free agency. And he wanted, you know, three or four franchise players, which in the end, because of a court ruling at a later time, we ended up getting. But the union was not going to give you any more than one uh, <laughs> a franchise player, even, even if they were going to give that. You know, and there yeah. was some question about that. So, and there were a bunch of other things. So, we listened to his presentation, and then we had dinner, and then we came in the next day and we vetted it and we talked about it. People were, some people said, well, you know, we should keep stop fighting for six year free agency, and others said, no, no, we'll never get it, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, it took another day. And then finally, uh, uh, Commissioner Tagliabue let us leave the third day. So we stayed over, in, in, in my recollection, for, for um, some two days after the meeting. And so when we got back home, everybody was kidding around about it, you know, because it was just one of those crazy situations. And, of course, we had all lived through the Chicago 7 in, in 1968 with the Democratic National Convention. I guess it was 68. Yep, 68. And uh, so we came up with a nickname for ourselves called the Pasadena 10. <laughs> <laughs> and soon thereafter, when we were supposed to be on vacation, we had, a, we had a working group meeting and a management council meeting. And we said, you know what? We ought to make T-shirts for everybody who was a, who was a, a, an attendee at this meeting, a prisoner at this meeting, <laughs> <laughs> a hostage, if you will, that's right. And, 
And so we had T-shirts made that said, free the Pasadena tent. (laughs) (laughs) And Wellington Merritt told me it was one of the greatest gifts he'd ever gotten. He was so proud of it. (laughs) (laughs) Those vacation vacation days in the NFL are very precious. (laughs) Few and far between. And and I suspect even though Wellington's gone and and, uh, uh, Dan Rooney is gone, uh, there will be some members of the Pasadena 10 proudly attending Commissioner Tagliabue's induction in the Hall of Fame next summer. And uh, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll reminisce about being a member of that exclusive club. <laughs> it's better in hindsight than it was at the time. Um, in any event, um, we kept driving forward, kept driving forward somewhere in the spring uh, of, uh, of 92, we commenced negotiations, uh, formal negotiations with uh, uh, Gene Upshaw and Jim Quinn and Jeff Kessler. Uh, Dick Burleson, who was the union's general counsel, who was kind of an old guard guy, came in and attended some of them. Uh, but he wasn't a, a major player as he had been in years past. Quinn, uh, Jim Quinn had... Uh, kind of taken that role uh, as the lead attorney, and he was an extremely smart and and very able negotiator. Uh, Very tough, too. And and, and we had a revolving cast of negotiators on our side, always Commissioner Tagliabue, always uh, Harold Henderson, uh, usually Peter Rucco, uh, and and one of the football people, George and myself, or myself, and um, and 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 then one of the business people, Steve Gutman or or John Shaw, and uh, and and these were high level, uh, tough negotiations. Pat Boland joined the group right about that time, the owner of the Denver Broncos, and was a huge help in terms of uh, of, of both ideas and, uh, and 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 being a really good negotiator. I mean, great personality. Easy to get along with. Uh, he was an outstanding negotiator, and and together we explored lots of ideas. For example, the rookie salary cap, which now exists today, and came in as a function of the eleven uh, collective bargaining agreement, was actually proposed in '92, uh, and, and and it didn't get anywhere because Gene was married to the previous rookie system. He felt that the rookies getting all that money. Um, drove the train and, 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 and made contracts better for veterans. And he wasn't willing to come off that situation, cap or no. So it didn't go anywhere, but we discussed it. You know, Bill, from the player's standpoint, um, there had always been this tension between what exactly what you said, where some people believed that by the rookies coming in and getting a lot of money, they're pushing the, all the veteran salaries up and carrying them with them, whatever the metaphor, whether it's a rising tide or a flowing river. But other people, veterans, especially people at uh, non-glamour, non, non-so-called skill positions, you know, who, had, who, who uh, uh, had sort of uh, had toiled in the fields for a long time and had lost, you know, knees and shoulders and everything to the game, were very resentful of the rookies saying, you know, 
you know, this friggin' guy has not taken a snap in the league. I've put my body on the line for 10 years, and he's making more than I am as a rookie. So there was a, you know, a definite school of thought, even among that side, that would have definitely um, approved of a rookie cap to keep the rookies sort of in reasonable overall position to where the veterans who felt they had built the league really should be. Yes, that's true. Um, and, and as we got to the summer of, of 92, um, I think both sides were coalescing around a set of principles. Um, the first was that there would be a guarantee. The question is, how much is it and what does it include? Um, the second was that there would be free agency. And the question was, after what term of service? How many years to free agency? Um and, and, and that turned out to be um, consequential, but, but a, a, a real interesting compromise. The third was there had to be a floor. Uh, Gene insisted that the owners had to, had to spend to a certain level every year or there would be damages to be paid. And that was anathema to a certain group of owners. They wouldn't hear of it. Um, and, and that was a, a sticking point all the way to the end because of the owners. Uh, they didn't want to be locked into a floor. Um, there was always going to be a forward-looking progressive benefit package, which was sort of a sidebar. But it, it took up a lot of money, and it was very progressive. Um, Paul and Gene agreed early on that, that, that you, you know, you were going to have uh, 401ks and revenue sharing, things like that. Um, and then the last part of it, which was really difficult, was the revenue sharing, because that was going to have to fund the guarantees. And uh, and so as we got to the spring of, of, of 92 and summer of 92, everybody was coalescing around those general principles. And we, we, we had pretty much within the working group built out the infrastructure and built out the systems that were that were going to be part and parcel of how the cap would work. And what was left to do on our side was to take care of incentives because the, the union was unwilling to give that. It, it should be said, and Rick, you may be able to speak to this better than I, but, you know, Gene had a constituency he had to answer to, which was the agents, not just the players. And so the agents didn't want to give up incentives. Uh, there were other; they didn't want to give up the franchise player. And and so uh, Gene had his own <laughs> people that he had to convince. It was a very interesting negotiation when you really stop and think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, you're right. There there were not necessarily uh, everybody uh, who had a stake in the system was at the table, but they all had a voice where they were talking in the ear of both sides. Yes, exactly right. And again, you know, there were some funny and, 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 and to some degree poignant things that came out of it. Uh, and I'll share one in a second. But as we as we approached the fall of 92, the framework of a deal was there. We weren't sure we could get it done. We weren't sure we could get it across the goal line. But the framework of the deal was there. One of the funny things that happened, I, we were in Minneapolis. I can't remember when it was, but it, it, we were there because there was a, a meeting that had to do with the white trial. I think the, the trial was ongoing. 
And uh, and so uh, it was Wellington Mara and Commissioner Tagliabu and I think Harold Henderson and maybe Dan Rooney and myself. And we were we were going to talk about uh, how many years to free agency. And so uh, they said, you know, you're going to lead the discussion and it's five years. So in I went. I knew it was probably futile, but I went in there anyway and, and I made my pitch. And, and even before I was through, Gene just pitched a fit. He banged on the table and the veins in his neck bulged out. And he said, we're not going to do this. How many times do I have to tell you this? You've heard this a hundred times. I'll tell it to you another hundred times. It ain't happening. It's four years. And, and I've eliminated some of the colorful language. And so if you sat across from a Hall of Fame offensive guard who was 6'4 and then about 250, uh, you know, with hands that 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 three times the size of mine banging on the table, it's it's it, you know it's disquieting. <laughs> yeah, and, that can be intimidating. That can be intimidating. That's a, that's a that's a fair thing to say. Having been there with Gene myself, I understand that. Yes. And and then Jim Quinn decided to get in on the act. Well, Jim Quinn had been a a track guy at, uh, in in New York at Archbishop Stepanak High School and later at Fordham University. So he was he was. He was the antithesis of Jim size-wise, and, and, and he decided to get on the act and hit me, bring, you know, throw a couple of brick bat, verbal brick mats at me, and and so I I I immediately got upset and I said, hey Jim, I don't have to take that from you. Gene's a Hall of Famer, I'll take it from him, but I don't have to take that from you. <laughs> You're a lawyer. You're a lawyer. <laughs> I may have said that. Yeah. And and. Uh, uh, it was getting a little contentious, and uh, there were some veins bulging on both sides. And all of a sudden, I felt this vice grip on my thigh. And it was Wellington Mara just pressing my thigh into the, <laughs> into the <laughs> chair, <laughs> silently saying, be quiet, quiet down, take it easy. You know, the message was clear. So we did end up obviously settling at four years. But the poignant part of it is years later, I'm at ESPN and I'm walking across the campus with two colleagues and I'm looking at the outdoor cafeteria and seated in the in the cafeteria in a suit, which only talent wears at ESPN. Everybody else is casual. So you stand out. Is it, and I said to is a gentleman and I, and I said to the people I was with, that looks like Jim Quinn. So they knew who I was talking about. So I said, excuse me, let me walk over. So I walked over and said, Jim, what are you doing here? Well, it turns out that his firm, Wild Gotchel, represents uh, ESPN. He said he was there for some meetings. So we talked about, you know, whether or not Commissioner Tagley would get in the Hall of Fame and so on. And he was standing and, and, and he kind of put his, his hand on my shoulder. He said, we did a pretty good deal, didn't we, Bill? I said, yeah, we sure <laughs> did, Jim. <laughs> you couldn't have scripted that. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. That's a it's a perfect uh, it's a perfect scene. Yeah, and you know, and Bill, you know, and and maybe we'll sort of close out on this, but you really did do a pretty good deal. I mean, both sides did a pretty good deal because all the things that Paul talked about that could come out of this sense of partnership and labor peace, uh, player player movement. That gave a guy who was a backup quarterback in one city, but you know, is behind Tom Brady or Peyton Manning, a chance to go someplace else. Uh, better salaries for players, uh, but also untold 
riches for owners relative to what, even though they're giving away a part of that uh, revenue, what they got out of the TV contracts, what they what they got out of merchandising, as it rose so dramatically over these years. So, I mean, Paul's vision was really just totally confirmed, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, it was. It was a, it was literally a stroke of genius, and it led that that system which uh, we'll talk about in detail in the next episode when we talk about how to manage it. Um, That system led to untold prosperity for the National Football League, like no other sport in the history of American sports. It brings us into the Audible for today. So uh, here we go, Rick. I think you're up first, and uh, it heads us in a direction of potentially not times of prosperity. You want to hit up the first Audible today? I will do that, and then you'll take us home, right? Uh, So, Bill, look, we're obviously living in unprecedented days. Uh, But one effect of this is going to be a vast uh, diminishment of revenue to the NFL. But they'll still have the same obligations to players under their existing contract. They're still going to want to try and get uh, improve their squads. You know, how how are they going to make the cap work next year? Well, they've already decided that um, that's one of the benefits of, of, of this system. Roger Goodell uh, and his folks, Jeff Pash, et cetera, and D. Smith have a, developed a, a really good working relationship. So they sat down and worked out a plan whereby the losses that the owners incur this season, which will be incredibly large uh, because there will be little or no fans in the stands, uh, no parking revenue, no, no concession revenue, none of that. Uh, that it's billions. Um, that will, those losses will be um, deducted from the salary cap over the next four years, and so it, it will ameliorate the hit that could have come this 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 coming year, twenty one, which would have been disastrous. There's also a mechanism to extend it if, if 21 turns out to be a, another untoward year. Um, and it's anticipated that whenever we get back to normal, whatever normal may be, please God, what we're used to uh, in the good old days, <laughs> pre-COVID. Right. Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, that television revenue will increase incredibly, uh, you know, just dramatically and uh, and exponentially. So uh, the loss will be felt in the short run. The cap will be somewhere around $175 million next year, which will be a downturn of about a uh, little more than $20 million, uh, or $23 million, I guess. Uh, and that'll be a hardship for some clubs. Uh, but it'll it, we anticipate that it will grow exponentially quickly once we're back to normal. So um, that's how they do it. And, and, and that's all because that partnership, uh, which was forged by Paul and Gene Upshaw so many years ago, um, extends to today. 
Well, one one question we had is sort of knowing that. So this will be probably the first time in a long time that the cap will have actually gone down. Are there certain things that a smart GM should be doing now uh, from a cap management perspective, roster construction, knowing that we're in the, going into this uncertain couple of years that they should be thinking about right now in terms of looking at potential free agents? They have available free agents and those kinds of things. Yes. Well, this is a, a good tease for our next show. Uh because cap management uh, for a general manager is consists of two things, uh, or three things, actually. Number one, evaluating talent correctly. That's the bedrock of it. If you can't evaluate talent correctly, the financial engineering is meaningless. Secondly, uh, understand where you are as a football team in terms of are you contending, are you descending, are you ascending, understand where you are on the, uh, on the continuum. And then third, because you can carry cap room over from year to year, which, by the way, came from the 11 collective bargaining agreement, the union would never allow it prior to that um, for reasons that we'll explain in the next show. But... If you can carry as much cap room over from this year to next, you will create cap room that the system would not have allowed. So there are going to be some teams, Jacksonville is a good example, who are essentially gutting their teams this year to make sure that they have additional cap room next year. So if the cap's going to be 175 and you were able to carry 20 million, 20 million over, you got 195 to spend. So um, watch for how teams construct their, as I said, Jacksonville is, a, is a, a glaring example, but watch how teams construct their rosters this year. There may be some that are just saying, hey, we're not competitive, so guess what? We're going to try and get as close to the floor as we can, and then we'll, we'll carry that cap room over. To next year very true and there's also that kid from clemson who will probably be at the top of the next draft so might not be a bad year if you're not going to be good to to let it ride well hey gang that is our show for today as always if you have any questions for us any feedback anything you want us to hit up in the audible feel free to hit us up on twitter at if bill polian and we will be sure to get to it thank you again guys this was a fun one today it was. And I think everyone just uh, heads up. The next show, I think, will be even more fun because we'll really get into cap management for all you amateur capologists out there. <laughs> okay. Ready to go. See you guys. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.